0: All right, look at your handout here. You remember the past few weeks, we've talked about the distinction between beauty being on you and also beauty being in you. So if you look at point one, let's, um, you know, I really want to, I do want to slow down. At times, I think I'm going, I'm going very quickly through this stuff. And And if it is too, if it's too quick, you know, please raise your hand. Um, But it's good to kind of slow down and just make sure everyone's tracking. We did that about three weeks ago where we talked about the two movies to make sure everyone was tracking the difference between on you and in you. And now, uh, to kind of slow down and track what that life means. Okay? Are there any questions from last week? Okay, good. All right. Well, just to start, you remember that beauty does two things. Beauty is on you. And that was, you know, uh, the Lord's favor rests upon you. You're a damn sinner. And the Lord says, you're not guilty. And that's a very beautiful thing. uh, Because even in his favor resting upon you, you're not the same person you were before. You have a different look about you. When the Father sees you, because the Son places himself on you, He doesn't actually see you, but in actuality, he sees his son. Which is why, you know, three weeks back, we drew the Ark of the Covenant up on the board, and we said, this is what the mercy seat's all about. You remember, they'd come in, and there was blood in the mercy seat. And what was held in the Ark were the ten words. words—not Again, not primarily law words, but just words. And you can have them as you wish, but those words were in there. Words being the son, actually. The son of the father. Jesus is in the ark. And resting on top of the ark then is the bowl filled with blood. So when the father looked down from heaven and saw those words, which may actually condemn the people, what he saw first was the blood. Okay? That's beauty being on you. When the father sees you, what he sees is his son. That's the Lord's favor resting on you. And that does does change you. Not in the same way that the Lord changes you when He takes up residence in your flesh, but it changes you in such a way that you were guilty and now you're not. It's a relational change. You were an outsider and now you're an insider. You weren't allowed to speak on the bench and now you are allowed to speak on the bench. It's a relational change. But as we said, and as we've, as we've tried to get to, is that the Lord wants to give you more than that. It's not merely about changing a relationship. It's not merely about, and I use merely there, and that's probably not the best word. He has more gifts to give than just forgiving your sins. Because forgiveness entails more than just being not guilty. As the Catechism says, where there is forgiveness, there is life and salvation. It changes actually how you live. It changes your relationships with those around you. It changes the way you even view uh, growing the church, making disciples and making them stronger, which is where we tried to get last week, but we went uh, a little too fast. So, point one, beauty is not merely something that is on you, but beauty is also something that is in you. And as you know from from September, when we first started talking about beauty... You remember that the gifts of God permeate all of creation, specifically His grace, His love, who He is in His nature, as you heard today. If you say that wrath is of God's nature, you're a heretic. Wrath is not of His nature. You know, people who say that the Lord's all about righteous judgment, that is completely heretical. He wants nothing but to have you back. So for Him to destroy you, Uh, is not what he does deep down in who he truly is as God himself. He is love and he is mercy, but he is not wrath. So his gifts, those things that define who he is, permeate all of creation. That's why, in a very real sense, the beauty of creation is a picture of who God is. That doesn't mean, now, you know, for the radio, Mary, make sure you get this on there. This doesn't mean... You can be on the 18th hole on Sunday and that's going to church. Because there is a locatedness to God's presence, which frankly is what we're trying to get after. His beauty can be on you, but there's also a locatedness to that. It is in you now. You can't find God on the golf course in the way that you can find him in here. Is he there? Yes, he's there. But he's certainly not there, as far as we know, for you. But his beauty is there. It's permeated all of creation, and his greatest act of creation is to create you. That's why, as Pastor Nelson said on Wednesday, it was a great sermon, you know, it's good, it's good, it's good, and then it is very good. When is it very good? After he creates man and woman. Okay, that's when things take on a whole different character. He is about relationships with human beings, which is why, as an aside, even had you not fallen into sin, even had your first parents you know, not taken a bite from the tree, there's a very real chance that the Lord still would have become man in the person of Christ. Not to redeem you from your sins, but because what he wants is an intimate relationship with you. He doesn't want to walk with you and talk with you in the garden in the, that, in the, in the way that you know he does. He wants to actually be a person who walks next to you And who, in a very real way, takes up residence inside of you. So, do you see the distinction? On you and in you. That's the way the Lord works. Any questions? Any questions about that? I know some of this, you know, some of the language may be a bit foreign, but I think the idea, you know, having been here, I mean, the real reason you may get some of this stuff is because you've had Pastor Brusick here for 10 years. I mean, this, for many of, much of this stuff is not new. Um, so you are, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of where other congregations might be. Are there any questions so far just on the on you and in you? The worst thing you can do is belabor the point, but at the same time, we don't want to jump ahead. <laughs> okay. So you know, then, that this idea, moving ahead to Jesus in you, The idea of two things becoming one is really not a new idea at all. All the way back in the garden, he takes Eve from Adam's side and the two became one flesh. And then St. Paul, Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound in the Latin, as I always say, sacrament is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In a very concrete, tangible way, you as the church are one flesh with your bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And that can't be emphasized enough. I mean, people just don't think that way. You actually, I, I, would, I would bet, you don't think that you are actually one flesh with Jesus because you're part of the church. But that's your salvation. It's not that you're a Christian. You're a Christian because you're one flesh with Jesus, and that's what saves you. Which is why, you know, it's always said, you can have it your way, which is the greatest heresy. Burger King has made the greatest heresy in the world. Have it your way. That is the, think about if you actually had it your way. How miserable, you might think it would be fun, but after a while, it would be horribly, horribly uncomfortable. It It would destroy you. It's called hell. It's called hell. That's where you can have it your way. Or you can have it the Lord's way. But the only way that you can have it the Lord's way because you don't know that way in and of yourself is to actually be one flesh with him and to have him say, come along, this is the way we're supposed to go. This is the way I go, so this is the way you go. The only reason a person goes to hell is because they say, I'm going to have it my way. And what the Lord says is, he's not going to force you to go his way, but what he says is, okay, then you've got to bear the cross which bears the sins of the entire world. When you say, I won't have Jesus, what you've essentially said is, I will die for the sins of the world. Because that's really the only reason you're saved, is because you're part of the flesh of the one who actually did die for the sins of the world. So think about that sometime. Can you actually bear that burden? But as part of the church, that burden is not for you to bear because it's already been borne by Jesus himself. St. Paul, Ephesians 5. And then the church carries this talk of mystical union, two becoming one flesh even further in all of its wedding rites. Holy matrimony signifies unto us the the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church. When you walk out of here with your spouse, two people have become one flesh, and that is a picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. It is an icon of the gospel. When people see you They should see Jesus. That's why, you know, that's why marriage in the church as Christians is not the same as being married by a judge. Just not the same. Because when you're married by Jesus, He puts you together and He forms you into an icon of who He is with His bride, the church. A judge can marry you, but not in the same way that Jesus can marry you. And so it's a great joy when, then when people say, you know what, we really want to get married out in the park, but you know what, pastor, we're going to get married in the church because this is where the Lord resides, this is where he is located, and this is where he puts his people together. Because then when they walk out the door for the first time as husband and wife, the minute they walk out here and people are snapping photos and throwing rice and doing whatever people do, They are a picture of the gospel. They are different than when they walked in here two hours earlier. They're not the same. And then the goal of every Christian marriage is to go out and to show show to the world who Jesus is and what Jesus does. He loves. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's obedient. He finds joy in all things. So the church carries this idea of a mystical union, which, frankly, the church didn't come up with. Jesus came up with, all the way back in Genesis 2. St. Paul carries on, and now the church says, yeah, that's right, two people become one flesh. They're joined, and they're different than they were before. But you can see the overarching analogy is what? What's the overarching analogy in all of these examples? Marriage. You ever seen The Princess Bride? (laughs) <laughs> I'm always worried that when I'm at a wedding, you know, you say the word marriage like 16 times, that you're going to say, how do they say it in the movie? I'm not going to say it because I'm being recorded right now. What's that? That's exactly right. And it's the priest who does it. I'm always, that goes through my mind at every wedding. And I've actually never seen the full movie because I frankly can't stand it. But I have seen that part. Do you know I've been asked to say it that way? Is that the same wedding where you're supposed to... <laughs> Really? I would actually pay money to hear that. (laughs) But that does go through my head. Every time we have a wedding, I think to myself, don't slip up and say it like that. Because, you know, 90% of the people will laugh. That's their idea of what a marriage is all about, the princess bride. But the church then carries that even further because Jesus does. The Holy Supper is a marriage banquet. It's where the new bride and her bridegroom come together and have this, the greatest meal you could ever imagine. You know, what's gone astray in our culture, at least I think, are marriage receptions. So, you know, Slusselmann's, as you think about wedding receptions, think about this. Think about Jesus and his bridegroom. You know, what he wants to do is have good food and fine drink with his bride, he wants to throw a party. He wants to invite a ton of people who shouldn't be invited. And he wants them all to feast uh, and then to go home happy. And the, the Holy Supper is the place where Jesus meets, his bride, or Jesus meets his bride and says, let's have a banquet. And it's actually better than the banquet you know because it's the holy body and precious blood. It's his soul and it's his divinity. It's all of who Jesus is. You don't just eat his flesh and blood. You consume the Godhead. You consume the body, the blood, and the soul, and the divinity of Jesus. So when I went to the shut-in, and she says to me after the Holy Supper, Pastor, I don't think I have the Holy Spirit anymore. It was a great tragedy. Because you can't say that. In Christ, as St. Paul says, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. When you consume the body and blood of Jesus, you are consuming God himself. You can't say I don't have the Spirit, and you can't say the Father doesn't love me. Because all of who God is, you actually consume in the Holy Supper. And look throughout the Scriptures. When the Lord enters a place and touches it, he changes it. The widow's son at Nain. He doesn't just say, young man, I say to you, get up. He says, young man, I say to you, get up. And what does he do? Touches him. That's the way the Lord works. When he speaks and he touches, he transforms who you are. Because it's not just some body and blood. It's not even the body and blood of Jesus of Nazareth. It's the body and blood of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the second person of the Trinity, who bears in his flesh the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what you get at the altar. Okay? And when that gets inside of you, it can't help but change you. And we could talk for hours about how we think those changes happen, and that may not be the best way to go about it. That might actually be a loser's game. But all you need to know is, (laughs) you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Whatever you can find in Jesus, now you should be able to find in you. Okay? And then we had the great quote from then we had the great quote from RS Thomas from his poem. And God said it was part of myself he gave me the lamb was torn from my own side. The way the, this is the way the Lord has always worked. It's not a new thing. We're not inventing anything. We're talking about beauty. We're not inventing anything and talking about you being joined to the flesh of Christ. This is the way the Lord has always worked. He puts himself into concrete, tangible things, and from there he delivers his presence. Okay. So, any questions so far? Is everyone tracking? Is it redundant? <laughs> At least one person was brave enough to say that. I'll take that as positive. I'll take that as positive reinforcement and uh, and constructive criticism. Yes, oh boy, this is never. You know, we had someone two weeks ago who I'd never seen before who raised their hand and said, "Can I ask a question?" Now I do, I do know you, so that helps. But uh, go, shoot. What, what do you have? I was just wondering if you could clarify what Mystical. Um, you know, probably isn't the best word. Mystical just means some sort of mysterious or sacramental presence. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, though. That's a It's a brave question and a good question. So then also you. Number three. The Lord who is beauty is not merely on you, but the Lord who is beauty is also in you. And the great Luther quote then where he says he doesn't merely want to remove his wrath from you, but he also wants to dwell in you in his fullness. That's the fulfillment of all the Lord's got to give. To merely be on you is not to go full blast. To to come to church and have your sins forgiven and not to go to the supper is not to have Jesus full blast. Which is part of the reason uh, why we realize that not communing kids at a younger age is a big tragedy. It's a big mistake because the Lord wants to get inside of those kids. I mean, one of the greatest things we do is now we've got young kids who, I'll tell you this, well, two things. One, the sermon today just reinforced all of that, that understanding is overrated. And two, uh, that what kids understand is underestimated completely. I told the women on Friday, you know, Emma, it's like The Little Mermaid. The only, thing I, the only reason I know anything about The Little Mermaid is because I'm reading this book, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism, where he uses the movie The Little Mermaid. I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think I want to see it. <laughs> uh, but The Mermaid, I think, uses the fork as a comb. And then Holly said it was called a, what, dinglehopper? Yes, yeah, see? Pay attention. Um, you know, that's how Emma is. She sees keys and knows that they are keys, and then the next minute she thinks they are a spoon. (laughs) She sees a basketball and knows it's a ball, and the next minute thinks it's a baby doll. But when she enters sacred space, she knows that this is the place where Jesus lives, and she knows specific things about Jesus. She looks at the bulletin, and you can see a crucifix, and she knows that is Jesus. There's no mistaking it. That's not a brush. That's Jesus. She sees Jesus on the wall and says, that's Jesus. Um, The way that the Lord affects these kids and gets inside of them, even at their baptism, in a sense necessitates that we say, uh, yeah, the Lord's got more gifts to give and here we go and let's give them to you because, you know, you wouldn't have a child and not feed it for 10 years. And the church shouldn't either. And it is a bit of a it is a uh, it is a bit of a it's not a lie, but it's just not completely true when we say to young children at the font, we welcome you as members as full members of the body of Christ. Full members of the body of Christ get Jesus inside of them at the altar. Okay, so that's part of where we're, that's part of where we're going. And this has implications for everything. For even how we do new member classes. The one great thing about this group is you're kind of privy to information. Um, But one thing we have to look at is not merely teaching new members for understanding. You know, saying here's what the catechism says and here's what you should believe and when you walk out the door you should have all the right answers. That's not, that's not a postmodern way of doing new member work. And it's frankly not in the way of the Gospels either. Is understanding and the right answers, are those important? Yes, they're very important. But more than anything, it's about bringing people into a relationship. And I don't mean this to be trite, like how other churches say it. That's not what I'm saying. Because I started this whole conversation by saying... Your relationship is defined by something that is concrete and tangible and fleshly. It's not about just saying, hey, come be one of us. We have great social hour. It's about saying you're lonely and you're unloved, and the church has an answer to that in the person of Christ who is love itself. And you can't get that by just coming 12, you know, 12 Tuesday nights. Because it's, you know, it's me and Bruzek, and how much fun can that be? Think about it. Think about it. What you need is a longer process where there are different stages, where at the beginning it's all about finding your place in community. Do you really even want to be in on this? Is this really for you? Are you really lonely and unloved? And if you are, is there a way that you can be loved? And once you're loved, then you actually might think of yourself as someone who is lovable. And when you think of yourself as someone who is lovable, you can't help but be part of community. It's people who feel unloved who don't want to be part of community. But you can't just say, come to a new members' class for 12 weeks and we'll teach you all about the faith, and then you'll be part of the community and then you can figure out if you're going to be loved here. It's completely backwards. New folks need to be brought in, and we need to show them the love of Jesus himself. And from there, they're wrapped up in community and what this community does. This, right now, is what this community does. You come on the weekend, you go to the supper, you come back down, you stay and you learn about who Jesus is and what he has in store for your life, and then you walk out the door, not to get in your car and go home, you walk out the door... Because you've got a job to do. You've got a job to do. One of the cheesiest signs I've ever seen is when you leave a church and it says you're entering the mission field. Okay, A little cheesy, but kind of true. That's why the Latin Mass ends with ete missa est, go the mission. The service is done. Get out of here because you've got work to do. Don't stick around. If you stick around, you're not going to be out doing what you need to do. And that's where we need to go with training new members. Now, this is a huge aside, but since you're privy to all this information, I'll just tell you, this is, you know, this is part of what we're going to try to do in this next year. Totally revamping the way we bring people into the church. Because it's not about, not about knowledge. That's very important. It's not always even about understanding. It's about being part of community where you can grow and mature in the faith. That's what it's about. And to get in community, first you need to be loved, which is the whole reason why we're talking about the mystical union and Jesus taking up residence in your flesh. What he wants to do is to send you out to love people. Okay? If you didn't know, the Lord's always been a Lutheran. (laughs) Because he's always worked by means. And he continues to do so today. Obviously, sacramental means bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus. Water is no longer real water. It is real water. It's no longer simple water. But it's water that's joined to the name of Christ, and which actually transforms your life. A word from a pastor's mouth is not simply just a word, but it's a word that bears the word himself. And he uses you. God might not be able to be found on the 18th green, but he should be found in you when you walk out these doors. When people see you, they should see Christ. When people hear you speak, they should hear you speak Christ. Unless, of course, you're coaching basketball, and you've had like nine turnovers in a row. Talk about wrath. It may not be of the Lord's nature, but it might be of mine. I don't know. That's a joke. That's a joke. (laughs) I'm going to get some letter saying, Gainig, you're right. Wrath is of your nature. But that's the way the Lord works. Any questions? We should probably get ready to move out here in just a couple minutes. But any questions? Um, Here's here's what I'll promise you for next week. We won't start at point one. We will move ahead because we actually didn't get all the way through this outline last week. Um, but we'll move ahead to actually the expression of love and what that means for the Christian. Because that is primarily how you know the Lord, as love incarnate. Okay? Any questions? Anything? Yeah, Jonathan. Not for you to answer now, but perhaps something that you might address in the next one going to be. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can make one comment on it now, and it probably would be a helpful thing to talk about. In all of this, you've got you've to realize a couple things. One, justification and sanctification are not completely separate acts like you think they are. I say you, meaning how Lutherans usually think they are. It's not as though the Lord says, okay, you're justified, and now it's going to be a heck of a ride the rest of your life, and I'm going to try to do something with you because you're still a damn sinner. But the moment he justifies you, he also sanctifies you. You are completely Holy. Um, But of course, you know, and I, part of this is speaking out of turn, because we usually talk about most of this stuff, you know, Bruzek, Nelson, and myself, um, you know, just kind of fun stuff. We joke around, or we say, what do you think about this? Uh, But I would, you know, you, you look at someone who's been coming to the supper for 80 or 90 years, they very well could be a different person than someone who's coming to the supper for their first time, or for the first year of coming to the supper, There's something different about them. I mean, look at a couple who's been married for 80 or 90 years. Well, you might not be married for 80 or 90 years. (laughs) Look at a couple who's been married for 50 years and a couple who's been married for five years. There very well could be a difference in their relationship. That doesn't mean that your relationship isn't a relationship. It just means they've been in this longer, which is part of the reason why we, we have great elders I mean, we have great elders who are not only mature in the faith, but are just mature, in, frankly, in life. And that's what the Christian life is all about. Because you can't separate being a Christian from life. If you're mature in life, you're mature in the Christian faith. Okay? And, and, and uh, Jesus always gets the first word. So even though I may be saying, this is what we now do, it's why I ended by saying, Jesus has always been a Lutheran, because he always works by means. Frankly, it's not about you. It's about the Lord working through you. But I think you'd be saying that there's something in your actual fabric that is not difficult, it's not just that you have the knowledge of your salvational signification and therefore you behave your company. It's yes. For for uh, y- yes, it is something way beyond knowing that something has been changed in you. It, it's, it's, I would say it's more than physical. It, it, yeah, it's physical. It's, it's a change in who you are. It's a change in who you are. Okay? Uh, John, yeah? I, I have a similar question. In the sense, in, um, in developing or bringing the community to so uh, our Christian community to its fullness, what? Mm-hmm. That's right. It's That's right. That's right. That's uh, a very good question. How does the Lord uh, do that with community? Someone, and I'll tell you this very quickly before we go, someone on Friday morning made an interesting ob- observation. We were talking about the catechumenate and how we change new member stuff and bringing people into relationship and whatever. And they said, um, I don't see a great change in community here from, just pick a year, five years ago. And and, and, and the person said, how can we begin to see that? Now, I I would disagree, uh, even in three years, I would disagree that there's been a change in community, and here's why. Uh, There are people that are wholly for community. They are all about running with Jesus. And there are people that come here that aren't about running with Jesus. And the goal is not to just say, then you shouldn't be here. The goal is to say, Come on, let's run with Jesus. But I would, if I was a betting man, I would, I would bet that the number of people who don't want to run with Jesus are now no longer the majority, but are actually the minority. I actually think if you look around the room, not just this room, I mean in church on Sunday, a majority of the folks want to do what's best. And this happens primarily, as you just said, by coming to the Eucharist. That's what it's all about. But it's bigger than that. It's a Eucharistic life. It's a mystical union life, which is why lately there's been this huge surge in coming to confession. As Luther says, when I urge you to go to confession, I'm merely urging you to be a Christian. So community changes when that stuff happens. Sure, sure, you cannot go to confession, but community kind of remains the same. You cannot come to the supper. You cannot come to church. But community kind of remains the same. In fact, it may even get worse. But if you're in contact with Jesus himself, if you're in the place where he puts himself into you, we don't always know how it changes community, but you can rest assured that it does. Because that's just who Jesus is. He is change. And he's change when he touches people. That's just, in the, that's just the Gospels. Okay? So how do, how do we see it happen? be in contact with the Lord and his gifts. That's how it happens. And that's going to be so important going across the street. That's going to be, it's imperative. It's a gospel imperative. We won't survive without it. Okay? Anything else? All right, thank you. Let's pray and uh, we'll be on our way. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.